Welcome back to another episode of Firewall. As usual, I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. Uh, with me today, a friend of the podcast, Teddy Schleifer from Vox. Teddy, you've been on a couple of times now, right? Uh, second time, second time. Plus, we did a collision recording and a clubhouse. We thing. should just go for the, you know, what's the, what's the... Uh, should go on the road, man. Triple Crown, Triple Crown, that's what it's called. Happy to be here. Yeah, we could do like an old-time radio barnstorming tour of the of the country. And go like to all the... For our, our six fans, will be entertained. Yeah, oh, there's at least 12 all of right. them. Come on. Six are in prison, six are not, but, but there's 12. I'll probably, I'm sure I just defended the left wildly by saying something like that, uh, which these days makes me happy. So um, here's my first question. So you write about, as, as a lot of our listeners know, kind of the intersection of money, politics, and technology, and think a lot about philanthropy as well, write a lot yep. about that. Um, we saw the news this week of Bill and Melinda Gates getting divorced. It comes on the heels of Jeff Bezos' divorce. Elon Musk seems to get divorced every couple of years. Um, is it just that if you have that much money, it's not possible to have a long-term functional marriage? Oh man, uh, this is me taking off my reporter hat and becoming a, uh, you know, putting putting folks uh, on the couch. Look, um, to some extent, I think billionaires are just regular people. Um, that's you know, we don't always know what's happening behind the scenes in any in any marriage. You know, whether they're worth you know, a hundred billion dollars or a hundred thousand dollars. That's just the reality of, uh, you know, the gap between uh, your public profile and your, and your private profile. Um, that being said, you know, not to, not to whip out a very small violin here, but, uh, being very, very wealthy does have unique stressors, um, in a way that the same way, not that they're equivalent to be, to be clear, but in a way that being very, very poor has unique stressors. Um, you know, managing a, a vast business empire um, is difficult. Um, and obviously, I don't know exactly what happened between Bill and Melinda Gates. Maybe this was uh, a relationship that had issues that were more ordinary than than kind of unique to being the fourth wealthiest person in the world. But um, it's certainly possible that there were some, some issues that were born uh, fundamentally out of uh, just how lucky they've been. Yeah. And, and look, and the divorce rate in this country is like 50%. So maybe just statistically speaking, a certain number of people worth $100 billion will get divorced, just like a certain yeah. number of any. And, Two out of the four, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, of the four who are like disclosed, like I would argue Putin's got to have more than all of that. <laughs> you just don't know, right? I don't know how many divorces Putin has had, but. I, I guess, I mean, can you get divorced from him or do you just suddenly expire in your sleep? <laughs> I, I don't know. It's a good question, though. People have said over the last couple of days with this news, the Gates Foundation is the most important and impactful foundation in the world. Do you agree with that or no? Yeah, I think that's accurate. The Gates Foundation is the most important philanthropy in the country. And what 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 have they accomplished that has impressed you enough that, that you would agree with that ranking for them? So more than any other U.S. philanthropist, um, you know, the Gates Foundation does an incredible amount with, with to advance global health around the world. Um, you know, obviously, that's been spotlighted over the last year uh, during the pandemic when Gates hasn't just been, you know, appearing on CNBC or on CNN to talk about, um, you know, COVID. He's behind the scenes. Him and his team have been corralling foreign governments, corralling drug companies, you know, bending the ear of of Anthony Fauci. Um, you know, their 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 involvement on global health matters isn't just a direct consequence of their money. I think part of it is leveraging their profile of, hey, we are Bill and Melinda Gates. 
you know, <laughs> you know who we are. So part of that is that, I mean, to be clear, they have had, you know, uh, things that have, they've admitted to be screw ups. I mean, a lot of their work on U.S. education policy, they have admitted has not been as successful as their work on global health. So no one's batting a thousand here. But just given the, the scale of the Gates Foundation, I mean, there's $50 billion. They gave away $5 billion every year. They have 1,500 employees. This is certainly the most mature philanthropy, and it's probably not even that close right now. Um, just in terms of the, the scale of what they do. I think if I, if I don't now put in a, a, a plug for the Bloomberg Foundation, I'm going to get in trouble. So I will say that the Bloomberg Foundation does incredible work, especially on the area of public health. You know, they partner with Gates quite a bit. Um, and so uh, I'm sure there's an argument to make that uh, they have a, a considerably equal impact um, now that I have checked that box. <laughs> um, so what what happens, uh, although I do believe that Michael Brooks is the most impressive person I've ever met. Um, what what happens to their foundation now they're divorced? The articles make it seem like business as usual, no change. They will have no problem working together. But I mean, is that realistic? I mean, are, are there really happy divorces that work that smoothly? Of course, you're right. That's what you would expect them to say now, right? The official line from the Gates Foundation is uh, all is well. They're going to maintain their current structure, their current strategies. Bill and Melinda Gates will still be involved. You know, I've been talking with former Gates Foundation employees over the last, you know, 72 hours. There is some skepticism, even among people who have, have worked there, um, whether or not that actually will bear out, because part of this is just fundamental human nature and personal relationships. And who knows is the honest answer about how the relationship will, uh, you know, progress in the next decade or so. Um, though I actually think a, the biggest impact of this is going to have nothing to do with the Gates Foundation. Um, there's so people don't probably appreciate the Gateses have $150 billion about that exists actually outside of the Gates Foundation, that eventually the plan was for that money to go to their philanthropy, either in their will or in the decade, next couple of decades. Um, but that money's not there yet. And I don't believe there's any legal binding requirement at this point, unless there's something that we don't know about that mandates that money goes there. So, you know, that $150 billion is going to be the subject of the divorce proceeding. Uh, presumably, it'll be split in, in some fashion. Um, and the big open question that I have is, where does that money go? The money that's sort of intended for the Gates Foundation, but isn't there yet. Does that fund other work? Do they put more money into, you know, a philanthropy that is going to be uh, divided to some extent, at least, by, by this relationship? Or does Melinda Gates start her own foundation to work on her own projects? Um, right. For that matter, does Bill Gates have a number in his head of cash on hand that he wants to have? And if now he loses some chunk of that 150, that means that the foundation has to commensurately get less uh, to meet his needs. I mean, there are no needs in terms of spending, but like, who knows, right? I, you know, if, if, I, if I understood the mind of Bill Gates, I'd be a lot more successful. Certainly, I think, that, I think we should all... Uh, you know, monitor this. And, you know, I think a lot of the skepticism is well-founded. Um, yes, there are divorces that, you know, uh, end up perfectly fine and they can remain business partners and friends. Um, but there are people within Gates world who, you know, ne aren't necessarily buying that line either. So you mentioned the, the, the four people worth over a hundred billion. So it's, it's Musk, Bezos, who's the other one, Zuckerberg or Arnaud? I believe Arnaud is up there. Uh, there's a bunch of folks sort of in the, in the, in the close, 200 areas. Sergey Brin and Larry Page are now over 100 billion um, because of Google's run over the last couple of months. 
So uh, Warren Buffett also, obviously, as we're talking about Gates, is in the neighborhood. Um, there's about eight to 10 people who are at 100 or close. So uh, Musk and Bezos are um, sometimes one and two, depending on their share prices and things like that. Neither of them are known for being particularly charitable, right, and philanthropic. But I guess both would argue through SpaceX and Blue Origins, uh, the work they're doing in their mind could save all of the inhabitants of the planet Earth. And what's more philanthropic sure. than that? Um, how do you look at it? So to be clear, those are both for-profit companies, um, which uh, yeah. you know is not certainly the technical definition of charity. Um, and right, uh, you know, Bezos and Musk uh, are have taken a more capitalist approach to at least the idea of social impact. Uh, certainly until recently. Um, Bezos has started to do a lot more over the last couple of years. Uh, his biggest thing is a $10 billion commitment to funding climate change work, which is still sort of in its infancy, but um, he's funding lots of kind of traditional green organizations. Uh, Elon Musk, I've been writing about sort of his recent charitable moves. He's been actually doing a ton of activity behind the scenes over the last six months, I would say, you know, I hear from folks that uh, his his family office has been very active in trying to find more and more charitable opportunities. Musk is in the process of building out uh, a substantial SpaceX operation in South Texas, and Musk has been giving money to South Texas schools and to the development of uh, the downtown of Brownsville, Texas, um, which certainly you know buys goodwill, of course. Um, but to your, yep. to your broader point, um, both of them, and frankly, you could make the same argument for lots of tech billionaires, sometimes see you know the nonprofit sector as a little bit outdated, um, a little bit antiquated, almost cute, um, and see the real way to enact big change for society is by using you know uh, the free market system to create a product of social good. Um, so right, Bezos and Musk have spent most of their time uh, and and sort of their non, uh, well, I guess for, for Musk, it is it is part, part of his job, but Bezos at least, you know, sees Blue Origin as this kind of big charitable or at least, you know, uh, socially minded bet. Um, also the Washington Post, another for-profit company um, that Bezos sees as uh, part of his his legacy, at least in the, in the, uh, in the social, let me tell you again, part of his legacy, at least in the socially conscious world. Do you think they see government as just this sort of incompetent nuisance, or do they see certain societal problems in their view that they would say, yes, government needs to be the ones to solve, take these things on and solve? I mean, what do you make of this? I mean, the, the idea that there's lots of, I mean, don't you encounter this a lot in the business world, folks who, who sort of think that, you know, yeah. government government can't handle it, so they need the for-profit system to- All the time. Yeah. And, and look, you know, having worked in city government, state government, federal government, sure. and, you know, the private sector- foundations of taking all the different perspectives, you know, to me, both sort of positions are, are absurd. And the socialist position of we can solve every problem through government. And as long as we spend enough money on it, everything can be resolved. Like that's just patently false. Right. And the libertarian position of the uh, market can take care of all and save us also um, patently false. You know, neither of those things work uh, on their own. But um, you know, there are things that require collective action. There are things that government is particularly needed for, sometimes even good at, right? There are programs like Medicare that happen to be reasonably sure. well run. Uh, and so there are times where it does, which then gets into the question of, okay, so Biden proposed these massive tax increases 
another couple of billion dollars in spending for things like childcare and healthcare and education and things that are, you know, most people argue are pr- pretty good causes. Um, Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk, Bill Gates, would any of them even privately endorse the Biden tax plan by saying government is the right entity to deal with these problems and my money's going to go one way or another to dealing with these problems, so I'll just pay the taxes? So I'm not even entirely sure at this point that this stuff will hit them that hard. I mean, we'll see how all of this stuff bears out. But I think one thing that, um, you know, one reason why the most leftist, the most lefty activists push for a wealth tax um, is they think that other sort of uh, tax programs don't really get at these unrealized capital gains that, you know, supply the bulk of kind of a tech billionaire's fortunes. Um, you know, uh, the capital gains tax measure. Um, if you increase the capital gains tax, it's only for realized capital gains. Um, now, part of this uh, proposal involves uh, a stepped-up basis, right? So that even when the tech billionaires die, they will their kids at least will have to, uh, you know, tr- pay, pay it, the capital gains tax. Maybe we'll see. We'll see what where this all nets out. Um, and then with the estate tax, you know, uh, we'll see where the Biden plan land, lands on that. But even the estate tax, you know, lots of wealth managers have uh, come up with clever strategies over the years to use trusts and other, you know, charitable bequests to get out of uh, paying the estate tax. There's, you know, famous Gary Cohn quote, um, Trump's former chief economic advisor. Yeah, on, only morons pay the estate tax, right? Which is sort of true. So, so we'll see where this this lands. I mean, that's why they're, you know, among the uh, more activist uh, orientation of kind of on tax issues. That's why, you know, more tax activists push for things like a wealth tax, because they see it as the only way to really get at the fortunes themselves. Because um, lots of tech billionaires yeah. don't really sell shares in this in, the, in these companies. They just borrow loans, uh, take out loans against their shares, which they then use to fund their lifestyles. Yeah. So, you know, look, so I, I actually support the Biden tax plan. I wrote my Fast Company column this week um, saying so publicly, and my view is, um, while they're I'm not convinced that government will necessarily run all these programs particularly well. Um, the benefit it will provide to the people getting the help, it's just f- significantly more important than anything I could do with the money, whether it's for myself or for sure. anyone else, right? But even with that said, the one thing to me that if you taxed unrealized gains, like you would literally drive every single fund out of your jurisdiction, right? Um, so if a city or a state did it, like if New York did it, every bank, every private equity fund, every hedge fund, every venture capital mm-hmm. fund would have to leave New York, right? Like I think about my business, right? So let's say I invest in 10 Series A deals and I put $5 million into each sure. deal, right? And six of those go to zero, a couple are okay, and then two go all the way up. And by the Series D, um, the let's say the $5 million I put in at Series A at an $80 million valuation is now worth – 1.6 billion, right? So I'm up 20, 20x, right? I'm up that much on paper, but it's a private company. I may not be able to get liquidity for yeah. years, right? Um, and so you're taxing me on unrealized gains of which I haven't actually gained anything. I literally wouldn't be able to pay the taxes, which means the only option would be to leave the jurisdiction imposing the taxes. And quite frankly, on the federal level, I think I was going to move to London. So uh, to me, that's the one thing that is nuts. And I assume that the left understands that and they just use it as a stalking horse. Um, but they may be so removed from reality and so removed from ever having to have created a job or do anything tangible that maybe they really just don't don't get it. I don't know. 
I mean, I guess, how do you, how do you both fund the things that you believe in while not ta- like, I understand where you're coming from, but why you tax unrealized capital? Yeah, gains? Well, I mean, I think I'm okay with, I'm okay with the buy capital gains tax increase. I don't think it'll actually double, you know, I think that was like another stop yeah. course. Um, okay. Pay higher income taxes. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's going to cost me plenty of money if, if this Biden tax plan goes through, but to me, it's not unreasonable. Um, I'm at least in a position to sure. pay, right? I literally don't know how you would pay taxes on unrealized gains. Um, and this is part of the problem, right? Which is you have, uh, on one hand, a lot of people on the left who feel very passionately about their issues, but have no experience at all in the real world of running a business, making payroll, making money, selling mm-hmm. a product, anything. So to them, it's all play money. It's all conceptual. To, to you, it's, it, you're, you're fine with a, a higher realized capital gains tax. And I mean, yeah. even even if, yeah. even if that makes folks less likely to pay um, or less likely to actually realize the capital gains um, until later in life. And I guess that's why with the step up basis, that's why you need that in tandem, right? Because otherwise, you know, people will just never sell and, you know, and keep it till they die. Yeah, keep it forever. Right. But, you know, if you're a fund, you have to provide liquidity to your yeah. investors, which means, you know, you have to maybe you could hold on to your shares, but. Um, you know, it's, it's harder to do that. So, yeah, but then, you know, so the, the left, there's no understanding at all of how jobs are created or wealth is created or businesses are run and therefore crazy ideas like a unrealized gain tax get on the table. And then on the right, um, there seems to be a lack of any feeling of obligation or responsibility for people who are really struggling. Right. Um, and I guess you could live your life that way. I mean, maybe that's what Bezos and Musk in some ways or Bezos does, right? He strikes me as the kind of guy who's like, you know, your problem is your problem, not mine. Um, so, but on, on both sides of, of the aisle, it feels like the people who are putting forward the ideas are the, are small slivers of, of both parties, uh, who have kind of the least connection to reality. Well, I mean, let's see where this nets out. I think ultimately, um, you know, there's obviously Biden's proposals on the on these tax issues uh will not necessarily be you know anywhere close to reality um you know obviously there's a, a ton more negotiating to do uh as there often is on, on tax issues specifically um but ultimately obviously lots of the, the further left proposals and these further right proposals uh are not going to pass so ultimately i think uh bradley you'll be you'll be probably pretty happy with where this all nets out yeah, that would be my bet too. So speaking of taxes driving people from one part of the country to another, sure. um, lots of people in your neck of the woods uh, have since taken their tech companies and moved to Miami or Austin. Um, is that like a real phenomenon or just something that reporters really like covering because it's a good story? Ah, uh, Of course. Um, this is the big question. Um, uh, to what extent do reporters hype up the uh, – the outlier cases and, and create a trend out of it. Look, I mean, a lot of the data does not support the idea that there's been some mass exodus from the San Francisco Bay Area. Um, there has been a mass exodus of people on Twitter uh, um, who are very vocal, um, but the data just doesn't back it up. I mean, this is not this is not a, uh, a complicated question. Um, no, and look, I mean, obviously, even if it is a small number of people in volume, you know, these are folks who uh, have a lot of influence, and you know even a vocal minority is, is worth paying attention to. Um, so more power to them. You didn't go to Miami this week? Uh, no, no, I'll go tomorrow. <laughs> no, I'm not going to Miami. Um, if you had to predict one of the two cities, Miami or Austin, becomes its own version of Silicon Valley in the next 10 years, which one would you pick? 
I'd probably pick Austin. Um, I think that, you know, there's a longer history of tech money that's been in Austin. Um, you know, there, it has always sort of been a small-ish VC scene there. Um, I mean, a lot of the Miami moves seem motivated by a feeling almost, right? Um, they're, they're seduced by, you know, the new mayor. Um, it's almost a mood um, as opposed to, like, necessarily there being sort of any structure for, for the startup ecosystem. Um, you know, I think one of the funny things about this whole thing is that uh, the Miami mayor doesn't actually have that much power in, in their system of government, but he basically has become a spokesman for uh, for the open open arms, you know, come yeah, on in. Great, he came on this podcast and, and made his pitch How to start. Yeah. Um, good. He's very good. No doubt. Um, right. He, it's not a strong mayoralty like a place like New York where the mayor of Chicago, where the mayor is the boss. Um, but, you know, in terms of kind of being a, a good salesperson for the area, South Florida, he's, he's very, very good at sure. that. Sure. So, so ultimately, I mean, let's, let's, let's see in a year how people are feeling. Um, but I would bet on Austin if I had to choose between two. So how does your world of tracking and covering billionaires change now that Coinbase is a public company and, and the price of Bitcoin has, even though it's dropped a little bit lately, but has gone up so, so much? Look, I mean, there's a lot of, uh, of brand new money that, uh, you know, there's various levels of, of liquidity given, um, you know, that lots of this money is in tokens and stuff like that. So it's not as if everybody is, you know, sitting on $10 billion. Um, but a lot of the, the wealth that has been accumulated is just by a lot of, you know, uh, not to offend them, but idiosyncratic uh, um, young billionaires, um, people who have a lot of money and are unusual characters um, as people who tend to be... Uh, very active in crypto uh, tend to be. Um, like I did an interview recently with this guy, Sam Bankman-Fried, who uh, is worth, or at least was worth at the time of the interview, he claims to be worth about $10 billion. He's 28 years old, um, is the founder of FTX, which is a big crypto exchange that's on the rise. Um, lives in Hong Kong and is just sort of a, a strange guy. Um, but he ultimately wants to give away all $10 billion to you know effective altruist causes, so things that have been proven to have the most impact. He also gave $5 million last cycle to a Biden super PAC. So there's going to be all this new money that is almost a different generation of wealth than the tech founders, you know, even people who aren't that much older than them, like Mark Zuckerberg or, you know, Patrick Collison or Brian Chesky. You know, those are billionaires who are going to do a lot of traditional things. Um, and then there's like a generation of folks who are just even a half generation, really younger than them, who are probably going to be weirder and probably going to fund more untraditional stuff and, and spend their money in, in different ways. Um, you know, let's see before we, you know, make some grand predictions, let's see if the money actually becomes liquid and let's see if they actually can do real things with it. But at least on paper, you're right. There are all these new people who suddenly have, have fallen into major, major war chests. So you spent a lot of time studying billionaires, writing about billionaires or around billionaires. Mm -hmm. and, and like, what's your takeaway? Are, are they, you know, are they a bunch of assholes? Are they people who worked really hard and deserve what they have? Like, should should there be tax laws that just prevent anyone from ever becoming a billionaire? Like, how do you feel about it personally? I'm a journalist. I have no thoughts or opinions of any kind. <laughs> I was, that's what I figured you were saying. No, look, uh, I, you know, I, my, I, I have two points that I think I can make as, as a journalist, um, both of which I think are consistent with, you know, the pointer uh, ethics standards. One is I think this world needs dramatically more transparency. Um, 
you know, obviously I'm talking my book there as a reporter who covers this stuff. Of course, I want more disclosure. But I, I think there's actually shockingly little transparency, especially in the world of philanthropy on this stuff. Lots of wealthy people have gravitated toward using vehicles that have no uh, disclosures, things like donor-advised funds or using LLCs for their charitable work. And I think ultimately, to have smart, serious debates about things like tax policy, like we we're talking about a moment ago, you need good data on what gets funded, how much do wealthy people give to charity, how is their you know fortune structured, uh, and more often than not, those questions are unanswerable based on public information, and lots of billionaires feel that nosy journalists aren't entitled to it. Um, so that's that, that's point one. Um, point two. I think there needs to be a lot more nuance in this conversation. Um, you know, to your point earlier about uh, folks having their set in stone beliefs about government or capitalism, and then you know deriving their their arguments from those bedrock beliefs. Like, not all billionaires are are evil capitalist. Uh, you know, marauders of kind of uh, you know the public trust, and not all billionaires are these you know. Heroes from God, you know, dispensing $5 bills on street corners to the hungry. Um, you sure about that? <laughs> I think so. Ultimately, these are human beings. There's good. There's bad. Uh, my grandmother had this saying that she would say in, like, broken Hungarian, which is, like, people is complicated. Uh, I, I'm not, my, I, don't, I, don't, I don't want my dad to, you know, criticize my, uh, my pronunciation. But people is complicated. And ultimately, um, you know, I think good reporters... It's not like, oh, you're coming at this from a moderate point of view, because some of it's not even like a left-right thing. It's just understanding that uh, billionaires is complicated. <laughs> and ultimately, to, to understand and cover this beat well, you got to cover them as people and understand what makes them tick and not come into it with this grand theory of the case. Because lots of the interesting stories are about the gray areas, I find, um, about the things that conflict with one another, or the internal tensions. Um which don't necessarily fit neatly into a narrative. What's the biggest misconception people have about billionaires? Ooh, good question. I think I think it's probably that they are all happy. Um, ultimately, they they are human beings, and their lives, as we were just talking about with Bill and Melinda Gates, can be uh, pretty complex. And it's not as if you know, being Kim Kardashian is 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 kind of as amazing as it appears on television. Um, you know, they have these struggles, they have unique issues with kids. How do you make sure that you keep them safe? How do you make sure that they don't grow up spoiled? Um, again, I'd rather be a billionaire than someone working two jobs and dealing with the struggles of poverty. Um, but I think the biggest misconception is that you've made it. Life is good. Um, there are issues to it, for sure. Um, all right. Well, uh, my last question was going to be, w- would you want to be a billionaire? I guess you would rather than, than work two jobs. But, but, but let's say you could have a normal uh-huh. life or you could be a billionaire. Based on everything you've seen and learned, would you want to do it? I mean, if you're offering me, you know, some some uh, payment for this podcast. And so I'm trying to find out. I'm trying to give a couple billion dollars. And I was just feeling you out. See what's, like. what's the tax deduction you're getting here, though? You know, that's, that's the real question. No, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm, well, yeah, but we're going to cover all your taxes, too. I'm just going to pay for you in Ethereum. I'll, I'll take it. I'll take it. All right, cool. Teddy, thank you so much for joining us. You bet.